The Higher Side Chats doesn't start with underwear ads or guilt-tripping donation pleas, nor would I ever commit the cardinal sin of podcasting and interrupt the flow mid-show to show you an unrelated sponsor. But the free first hour episodes do have to start with a little PSA before we get into it to ever so quickly remind slash inform listeners both old slash new that you're about to get into what I'm sure is a great first hour of a high level interview, but that means you're missing half the show. If you like what we do around here, get yourself a THC Plus membership and listen to the full two hour interviews as they were really designed to be and as I know you would enjoy them most. Give a little and actually get a little more in return of the thing you're actually engaging with. Five episodes every month, plus forum access, community comments, downloads to all the closing cover songs, a plus show RSS feed to use with any private RSS feed supported app, and the occasional joint session bonus shows, which include the messages you might leave me about your own theories, experiences, or otherworldly encounters at thehiresidechats.com slash voicemail. If you're not quite sure, if you just want to feel us out, or if you're only here for this particular episode, no worries. New first-time subscribers get a seven-day free trial when you sign up at thehiresidechats.com. Cancel anytime. Try it out, because it's so important to feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go. And with that said, let's get on with it already, huh? In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Let there be light, higher side chatters. Coming in hot from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and there is obviously no shortage of darkness at this point in the time loop, from the near-contagious fear and paranoia, to the disdain for opinions other than one's own, and the polarization of almost the entire world over issues that we didn't even know existed just three short years ago. Well, if negativity is what the dark entities of the astral plane feed on, lately it's been an all-you-can-eat buffet. And yet, the silver lining is that we see the skepticism of allopathic Rockefeller medicine at an all-time high, and the desire to fold in a wider range of systems and practices that move us towards a more robust and full sense of what true health and healing is has never been more potent. And it's best to not let your beliefs and preconceived notions get in the way of the data, because there are some unbelievable stories coming out of modalities like shamanism, energy healing, meridian tapping, ancestral lineage repair, rebirthing breathwork, entity attachment clearing, curse lifting, and many other things that relate to the unseen and often ignored parts of the whole self and the field many of which are covered in the new book from returning guest Peter Mark Adams entitled The Power of the Healing Field, Energy Medicine, Psy Abilities, and Ancestral Healing, a collection of information and shared stories from he and his wife's more than 20 years of intensive professional healing work, as well as experiences from other gifted healers, psychics, and shamans. You might remember our last interview from the much simpler time of 2017 about his epic deconstruction of the Sola Busca Tarachi deck and his book Game of Saturn that tells the story of a nefarious pact between the 15th century elite families and the Demiurge himself. 
Now Peter is back to balance that darkness with the light, and I couldn't be more psyched to get into it. The game of Saturn Scholar, Energy Field Explorer, and Healer, and Very Sick Times. Peter, welcome back to the higher side. Hi there, Greg. Lovely to be back on with you. <laughs> yes, man, this is a real pleasure. I still get people saying that the Game of Saturn interview is one of their favorites, even years later, an actual physical artifact that tells the story of an elite packed with a dark force that helps them stay at the top of the pyramid in exchange for creating more darkness and negativity, maybe in a closed loop of reincarnation. I mean... Wow, that fits in really well around here. <laughs> and just before we get into the new book, which also fits in really well and is excellent, because people would kill me if I didn't at least ask, are there any updates on that work of the Game of Saturn? Because I remember that there were some aspects of the deck that still needed to be decoded. I think it was parts of the trump cards and a few other things. But has any further clarity come out in the last couple of years regarding the decoding of that deck? I think the major insight I've gained over these years, Greg, is the contextualization of the system of thergy and magic that's embedded in the deck. And I now see that in, in a far more purely Hellenistic light rather than a Gnostic Christian light, if that makes any sense. I understand now that the underlying metaphysics were not evil. They were to support what was considered legitimate power at that time. Okay. Mm. So that's a very different lens for me. You know, we tend to get caught off in this light, darkness, good, bad, Gnostic kind of Christian outlook, and it colors everything. And it certainly makes things look a lot darker than they are in reality. I mean, goodness knows the Renaissance had enough problems to deal with, but. When you recontextualize the deck into its original milieu, you really get a better feel for it, for what they were trying to achieve. And for sure, that still included multi-generational <laughs> incarnation into circles of power. There's no doubt about it. But it was not necessarily evil. In a Hellenistic worldview, all the deities, all the gods are purely positive ones. Okay. But there's a distinction between the fierceness of the draconian energy that that deck sought to bring through, and that's associated with deities like Aphrodite, or even Dionysus for that matter. Wholly different quality of energy. So there's no doubt that this deck embodied a, a martial, powerful, draconian current, but it was not per se evil in itself. It was pure power. Right on, right on. So that's quite an evolution in thinking about it. Yes, I would say so. And you did tell me that you've discussed some adjacent work in Theon's publishing's The Cult of the Black Cube, and in particular, David Beth's essay, Cosmic Gnosis, which is a brief exposition of the metaphysics of David's Saturn cult. Can you tell people a little bit about that? Obviously, it seems very thematically connected to your Game of Saturn work. Is that where this Hellenistic angle came from? I think David's ideas have developed from a current within European thinking through this Ludwig Klages and his book Cosmogonic Eros, which is just being reprinted, actually, by Theon. 
And in there, what I think, if I can kind of paraphrase it briefly, is what we're looking at is imminence and body-centered or embodiment as a primary spiritual aim. That's to say, it's not looking for an intellectual framework and transcendence in some other higher reality. So it's far more Zen-like if that helps people to contextualize it. You know, it finds everything in the now. And in a sense, that is consistent with the fierce energy of invoking this draconian current. It's intensely now energy. It's intended to change your perception in the present moment. And it's not really banking up some imagined benefits in some other life. Okay, I don't know if that helps to bridge the... <laughs> yeah. We would need another program to deal with this adequately, I can tell you. <laughs> sure, sure. It's dense stuff, but it is nice to get a little update even four years later. We got some long arcs around here, believe it or not. But let's talk about the new book, The Power of the Healing Field. I really enjoyed it. Several of the energy healing modalities that you talk about were new to me. Some of the stories are pretty wild. But this is an area where you and your wife have really been focused for over two decades, right? Yeah, pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I must say she's done far more of the day-to-day -day healing work than I have. I've, of course, been sidetracked to write books. But yeah, these are our shared experiences. They're from our case files. And as you say, they're extraordinary, which is why I wanted to get them out there. I wanted people to understand that. There's an extraordinary world of healing available and literally at your fingertips. So the second reason I think it was important, Greg, is that it demonstrates something about the nature of our reality. You know, we're all kind of locked into the immediate pool or circle of our awareness day to day, and we're dealing with a lot of stuff. When you get hold of these stories from the outer edges of human experience, they shed a very different light on the reality we're immersed in. And I wanted to get that across to people as well. Well said, and very important point, because there's so many things that are put in the box of, say, paranormal, that our system just says, well, that can't exist because our model is right. And it's like, Actually, maybe you have to rethink the model and adjust and fold these things back in because they clearly are things that happen to people that people see and experience and interact with. And the healing is a big aspect of that. But we have a real arrogance in the West that we already have it all figured out. So what you're talking about has to be bullshit. Yeah. I think for me, what really brought this into a very sharp focus was attending what's called family constellation therapy. Mm. And I went along just as an observer. I want to see what was going on. And within that like hour, two hours or whatever, uh, my worldview changed. And let, let me just tell you what happened because it'll be clearer. And it sheds light on everything I have to say after this. You know, you go in this room and there's a group of people there who are complete strangers and there's like a therapist and there's a couple of people who are there for therapy, right? And those people then just select people from this anonymous group to represent key members of their family. 
and they say, you know, will you be my father, mother, brother, whatever? And they position them in the middle of the room in roughly how they feel that those family members relate to each other. So some be looking to each other, some of them be far away, some of them with their backs turned, you know, this is family stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this is the extraordinary thing that the person who wants the therapy then sits down. There's no story. Nothing has to be told. Nobody knows anybody else. But from my own personal experience, almost immediately that symbolic pattern is formed in the middle of the room by people representing people who may be long dead and energy forms around you. And it's like an emotional overlay. So you're fully aware of being yourself with your thoughts and feelings, but you suddenly have access to the thoughts and feelings of somebody you don't know. Hmm. So the therapist then goes around person to person, checking out their feelings, identifying where the blockage is in the flow of this family's energy. And the blockage may be several generations back. And that's extraordinary. You can bring people on to represent people who are long dead, and they immediately connect with that person's thoughts, feelings, and the problem. So you can then resolve the field in which these memories and feelings are held. This is extraordinary. And anybody can go along and, and witness this for themselves, but it changes everything about our perception of reality. It means that the ritual space generates a field, that the field has non-local, atemporal qualities, that it can access thoughts, feelings of people, even though they're long dead. And not only that, you can recode the field. You can recode past trauma. And having done so, the person who needs the therapy, who's attended for the therapy, gets the benefit when the field is corrected. Now, this is absolutely extraordinary, Greg. And it changed my perception of reality in a fundamental way. Hmm. Yes, I've heard you talk about this before, and it's really interesting because family constellation therapy is not top of mind when talking about these things. It's something I don't know if I've ever heard about before you talking about it. And you mentioned an emotional overlay, and that's certainly interesting. There is a wide range of emotions, but they can kind of be summed up into a few categories. And I don't know if I would really sense that the emotions were coming from someone else and just be like, well, maybe I just am getting a little restless or something. But you also mentioned the thoughts of people that might be long since dead. Can this be considered a type of channeling analog of some kind? I think the problem we have when we encounter phenomena like this is that we're still locked into a basic duality of mind-body and into a model which says, your mind, your consciousness is generated from neural activity. So it's like locked in you. And I think this model is fundamentally wrong. Okay. What we actually have is what's called panpsychism is a better description of reality. The consciousness is distributed throughout all reality. Okay. Instead of us generating consciousness from our neural activities, actually our bodies and our minds act more like a receiver-transmitter. So in the context of the family constellation, what those people are doing is 
receiving from the field and transmitting it out so that we can understand the dynamics of that family. Okay, so essentially we've now shifted from a mind-body dualism in which the mind is generated by neural activity to full-on panpsychism. The consciousness is a fundamental aspect of reality and it's interwoven with the quantum field at every level. And this changes everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, panpsychism is very interesting. I mean, it's kind of like animism light, isn't it? It's kind of like a model that our culture is able to accept and able to process or just starting to. But maybe it's a gateway to a fuller, more accurate understanding of, of something even deeper that consciousness is obviously permeating from anything organic and alive. And that the field is probably way wider and more complex than we realize. I mean, would you say panpsychism is the totality of this worldview? Or is it more of a gateway to getting our culture from where it is now to where it needs to be? It's absolutely the gateway. What is interesting for me, you know, I, I, I studied philosophy at university, you know, and I did very hard edge philosophy. It's you know, analytic philosophy, formal logic, philosophy of science, and all that stuff. What I've seen in the past 10 years is leading academic philosophers moving to embrace panpsychism. That's extraordinary movement if you know anything about analytic philosophy. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's amazing. So it's not unusual now to see, you know, full international conferences in philosophy dedicated to this issue. In other words, they've moved on pretty well from the old mind-body, what-is-consciousness type debate. Mm -hmm. For me, though, the next step is full-blown animism. And I see a lot of trends emerging that suggest that large parts of the global culture has long adopted that. But what we're now seeing is that it's shifting into the educational and scientific culture as well. So it's going to take a while, but I believe they will end up, or this planet as a global culture will end up fully animist at the end of the day. <laughs> and it's happening faster than I ever thought it would happen, naturally. I have to say that. Well, that's a beautiful thing. It is. <laughs> it's huge. <laughs> you see, it seems to me, Greg, the only way that we can treat the environment as an externality and hoist shareholder value above everything else is if we do not or we fail to grasp the fact that nature is living and conscious, sentient being. And I think when you grasp that, you cannot go on as you did before. Mm. You have to start thinking about a lot of things and the consequences, long-term consequences of your actions and behavior. I think one area this is going to hit eventually is in the area of the economy. It has massive implications for how we engage with the world going forward. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for people who maybe don't see that connection as obvious? How would an animist world recontextualize economic issues? Industry by industry, the first one would be meat consumption. I mean, we're slaughtering millions of animals day to day. 
in the most cruel ways. Yeah, factory farming is a mess. Animals proven to have high intelligence, high levels of intelligence. You know, and the, <laughs> how is that possible? I mean, it's possible only because we have this mental, this moral distance from them. So there's some intellectual structure is supporting that gap. And when we knock that intellectual structure away, the gap becomes inadmissible. It's unacceptable ethically. Okay. Now, that itself is going to change a lot of stuff about how we feed ourselves. Do we need to consume the volume of meat that we currently do, for instance? How much of that meat consumption is essential? How much of that meat consumption, given the processing it goes through, contributes to obesity and low level of immune system function? So we're, we're knocked on immediately from one industry straight into the healthcare business. And the sugar and the processed food. That's going to contribute to obesity it. quite a bit. <laughs> you got it. Absolutely. So this is like the piece of wool, which you get hold of it and you start pulling it and a lot of stuff begins to unravel. Right. So in general, we would just be less exploitive and cruel to the overall ecosystem. And, uh, you know, people can extrapolate from there. I think we'd have more of a custodianship, you know, which a lot of traditional peoples have that worldview. We have to get back to custodianship. Yeah. Cheers to that. And in the intro of the book, you talk about the process of exploring all this and write, I found myself asking, why is it that these things are so little known, so rarely experienced, and so obscured from view? Because many of these experiences possessed such rare and unusual qualities, I wanted to share them since they suggest a far more expansive and uplifting view of who and what we are than what mainstream thinking allows for. And I have the same questions. If it works so well and requires nothing but a skilled healer, how is this still the best kept secret? Is it a belief issue? It's a commercial issue, essentially. Let's take one example to illustrate it. Gary Craig developed emotional freedom techniques. It's like a tapping the meridian technique back in the early 80s. And he was given seminars everywhere. He went to an institute where Vietnam vets were there, you know, where they were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. He filmed this and he, like in one or two sessions, he was able to break the PTSD down to anxiety. And that... Dealing with PTSD, I mean, in current healthcare, is, it's considered to be intractable. Let's say you can medicate the symptoms, but you can't do anything about it, right, pretty well. Roll on 30 years, and the studies cited in the book, Greg, properly performed medical study, they were knocking PTSD down in like two or three sessions under test circumstances, okay. What has happened in the 30 years? We've seen a huge boom in PTSD because of all the wars. And we've seen nothing in terms of the mainstream medical and healthcare system responding to that. Now that's a commercial issue, isn't it? I mean, to learn EFT, you can do it for free. You get on YouTube, 
<laughs> you watch the videos, you check it out on yourself. You can do it to some family and friends. You can gain a basic competence very easily without spending, you know, a cent. So how come a system which is like free as air pretty well can knock down anxiety disorders that are intractable to modern medicine in the space of two or three sessions? How come that isn't front page news? Good question. Yeah, well, somebody is not going to make money off the back of it. That's the problem. Right. Well, I definitely would agree that the commercial issue is a big one. And I love to throw shade at the overall system and how we've been conditioned. But there is nothing stopping an individual from Googling family constellation therapy or Reiki or EFT tapping. You can find these things in your area. I was ignorant of it, but once I started to learn the terms, I started looking around and there are plenty of these kinds of healers in my area, probably in most major cities in the US. They're not advertised, they're not promoted, but if people change their thinking that these things are actually viable and potent, well, they are there and these people do have nice little independent businesses set up from them. So, I mean, the commercial issue is there, but the conditioning issue is what's really stopping people from seeking out these sorts of things that do exist. Yeah, I guess you're right. It's a societal issue, namely that you look to experts who are in the you know official domain for the solutions to all your problems rather than seeking solutions yourself. That is part of it. But I think there's a deeper issue here, Greg, which is much wider and probably one in which we're all in somehow engaged, and that's addiction. Mm. Most of us have several addictions. You know, there's food addictions, the stuff we love to eat, stuff we love to drink. And part of us knows that it's really not good for us. But we have to keep coming back. Because the food, the products are designed to get that response from us, right? Mm -hmm. So again, without a shift in your mental framework saying, well, look, I recognize this stuff is killing me, <laughs> basically. And I'm going to find a solution to my emotional needs, okay, which are driving my addiction. So it's like a two or three step process needs to happen before you go off and you connect with some of these therapies and some of these modalities to begin addressing the issues. And that is a big personal challenge. It definitely is. And I've heard you say that after a pretty potent experience, not sure if it was family constellation therapy or something else, but you just stopped everything cold turkey. And so maybe I need an enlightening experience to help my willpower a little bit. <laughs> Maybe I'll just see the light. <laughs> Let's go over that. That's a good example, but it's a bit remote for most people. This was the first Reiki teacher I had, and she really had a real powerful energy. I mean, real Kundalini-type energy around her. And did this meditation, and all of a sudden found myself in this room, in this meditative state, in this room with a black and white checker floor. And there was like a coffin on the right-hand side of me. And I looked at it, and I was lying in that coffin. <laughs> now, 
Sounds like you were in the Skull and Bones basement. Uh, I was going to say, this is, <laughs> this is the symbolism of a third degree masonry, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a mason. I mean, I'm, <laughs> but somehow I found myself. And again, this ties into what I was talking about earlier, the field and how everything is in the field of consciousness. So when we shift our awareness, we move into other realities. And I had shifted into this Masonic reality. And then I, I kind of moved out of this room and I went up into this circle of light. And it was, you know, after that experience, I just stopped drinking and smoking. I never gave up. I want to <laughs> emphasize that. I just stopped. So I can't, <laughs> can't claim any great, you know, moral superiority. <laughs> Fair. Well, I'm going to have to find myself a coffin and a checkerboard floor. because <laughs> work for you. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so just giving people a little more context for the overall modalities that you cover in the book. We mentioned a couple of them, but talk to them about the scope of what they will find in this book, what modalities you consider top of mind when it comes to the healing field and the things that work. Okay. So you're exactly right. I I wanted to cover a range of modalities and show them in use so that people say, okay, for that kind of thing, this is how it would play out. You know, it's having that mental model before you engage with any of this can be very comforting and give you like a background. So that's why I did it essentially. So there's issues which people have as, let's say, presenting issues. They're fully aware of them. And there's stuff where people just have a general disquiet in their life, a sense of unfulfillment. Okay. So if you have a clear and present traumatic memory and anxiety about something specific like heights or whatever, then the meridian therapies like emotional freedom techniques, mind connection healing are ideal. Because you go there, you tell the therapist what you want, what the problem is, and they'll probably they'll tap or they'll get you to do the tapping. Okay, because there's always an element in all of these techniques in which you learn to do them yourself. They empower you. You don't just go along passively and somebody does something and then it's gone. No, you learn how to do this yourself. Okay. For the general disquiet where you can't quite put your finger on the problem, you know, there's just something wrong in your life, doesn't work out the way, there's always some conflict or failure, I would recommend rebirthing breathwork, but with a qualifier. I've worked as a rebirthing breathwork facilitator, so I really know this area quite well. Rebirthing breathwork is not for everyone. It's intense, but it's going to move you in your life, in your life passage. In the space of like four or five sessions, you're going to find a lot of stuff you've been carrying for years, relationships that are faulty, wrong, negative. It's going to fall away from you and you're going to enter a new phase in your life. Okay. I want to underline that rebirthing breathwork is very intense energetically. It's dead easy to do. Once you learn the technique, it's so easy to accomplish yourself. 
but it moves your awareness so radically fast. It's always better to do it with somebody that you trust. Again, the intensity involved is not for everyone, but if you have that kind of where do I go next and why is my life so like this, but I don't know the cause, rebirthing breathwork is probably the best way of just moving yourself forward without having to do all like talk therapy, analysis. There's no talk in it. It's just breathing and very high levels of inner energy so that the energy does the clearing in the background. And then you just, a week later, two weeks later, you shouldn't suddenly find yourself in a different space, emotionally, intellectually, or mentally. So that's the basic distinction I would draw in the techniques available to us. You know, clear focus on the presenting issue, go for the EFT, the mind connection healing, um, no clear focus, but a sense of just general disquiet. Go for rebirthing. And if you have a sense that something in the family field, in the ancestral field, is like bearing down on you again and again, definitely the constellation therapy is going to probably give you the best result in the shortest time. But having said all of that, Greg, I would say to everyone who's interested in the esoteric, in the new age, in a better future, get hold of one or two of these techniques and master them for yourself. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Empower yourself, because that empowerment, that ability to deal on a day-to-day -day basis with all the, uh, excuse me, the shit we have to wade through, if you can clear that the day it happens, the same hour, the same minute it happens, you're going to be feeling far better place than just letting it accumulate all day long until you need a good stiff drink at the end of the day to cope with it, okay? Yes, that makes a lot of sense. You know, the techniques have this immediate payoff. And as I said, you know, to learn something like EFT, you know, the YouTube is absolutely stocked <laughs> with more lessons about EFT than you could ever digest in a lifetime. So, you know, you just help yourself, but the only thing I'd say about the meridian therapy techniques, Greg, is like, for instance, if you start the tapping technique, EFT, for a specific problem, finish it off in that session. Don't let it hang on. Okay. That's just a rule of thumb. These techniques shift your energy body fundamentally into a new space, into a better space. But you need a completion. You need to settle your energy body down in its new space. So never leave emotional issue hanging over once you started working on it. That's about the only rule of thumb there is in connection with them. Right. You always got to close the ritual. That's esotericism 101. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and also, it's just like, like you said, this stuff is out there on YouTube. People can learn about it in your book. If you're waiting for the world to change, if you're waiting for the nightly news to tell you, hey, it's time <laughs> to find your meridian points and start to tap in, uh, you'll be waiting a while. But this meridian point tapping practice and just the meridian points in general, this is very old and we've known about it as a species for quite some time. And your book has a little piece of pretty compelling evidence that it is quite old. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean... Like everyone else, I mean, 
I just assumed it was an ancient Chinese or Indo-Chinese practice, you know. And then I came across this strange archaeological case because of the glaciers receding in Europe, you know, in the Alps. They came across this body entombed in the ice and they extracted it. And when they analyzed the body, you know, it was like a Bronze Age. <laughs> I mean, thousands of years old, trapped in the ice. And the strange thing is they were able to diagnose the kinds of conditions that the body was suffering from when it died, or the person was suffering from, I better say, when they died. And the peculiar thing was that the body is covered with a whole series of, of small tattoos, and yet the tattoos are just like dots. They're not shapes or forms or anything. And that was very puzzling from anthropological point of view because there appeared to be no meaning conveyed by the tattooing patterns. But when they compared the points where the tattoos were, to the acupuncture points that would need to be treated for the conditions the body had been diagnosed with, they found something like 90% match with contemporary acupuncture treatment points. Mm. You know, and for like Bronze Age Europe, this is incredible. Yeah, it really is. And that last 10%, who knows, maybe there's more we need to learn or relearn. Yeah. Also, the tattooing was done with natural herbal substances. So again, there's been dimensions of healing that we've lost in the West in the last you know, few hundred years. Yeah, no doubt. And to ask you a little more about rebirthing breathwork, it is in the book quite a bit. And you even include a story of a guy who experienced a radical positive transformation after a session. And he said that in his own birth experience, his mother's water broke hours before she could deliver, and it caused him to come into the world with some trauma. And I thought that was interesting because that's a huge aspect of my own daughter's birth. She's fine and healthy, but definitely had a crash landing, as we've been saying. Well, many of these stories are people working through this stuff way later in life. But how soon would you start trying to clear that out if you knew that a baby came into the world in a less than perfect way? I think you need to have clear, or that person needs to have a clear perception that they have those negative feelings. So essentially, you can't perform it for that person. That person has their, as we used to say, karma. They're born in a particular circumstance, in a particular way. And at a certain age, they're going to become very aware of their emotional states, okay? And it's only at the point that they are kind of a self-mover in terms of wanting to engage with these issues and find solutions, then the door opens. And I think that's true for, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're 10 years old or, or you know, 90 years old. You need to come to that point where, you know, you recognize this stuff could be better. There's something wrong here. There's something recurrent. For instance, having upsurges in anger during the day all the time, and I can't control them. Wanting to do something about it is the big step, Greg. Mm -hmm. Saying, I'm not just yeah. going to indulge and act this out again and again and again, you know, on the people around me. No, I'm actually going to take responsibility for my emotional state and I'm going to transform it. When that happens, you can move mountains. 
Right on. Yeah, obviously an infant can't do the breath work and Reiki probably requires too much relaxation and focus. And maybe even meridian tapping no, is no, uh, not going to work. Let, but, let, me, let me interrupt you there. Sorry, Greg. You know, babies, animals, they love Reiki. Oh. They absolutely love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I stand corrected. I've been in this huge park one day, you know. I was sitting on the grass. I saw this woman bring her dog in, you know. It's three or 400 meters away. And the dog just made a beeline to me and then presented its belly for me to treat it. And she said, oh, I had an operation a day or so ago. It couldn't settle down since then, you know. The dog can see the energy in you. And you may have noticed that in the book, there are a stream of three or four photographs mm -hmm. in which I was actually able to photograph the Reiki energy in manifestation. You know, this was 2001 or 2002. I had one of the first digital cameras that came on the market. And we had this group of students who were just graduating as teachers. And they said, come on, take some photographs. So, you know, they all lined up there in front of a bookcase. I took the photograph with the flash. And, you know, if you stood in front of a mirror and took a photograph with a flash into the mirror, that light would just flash back straight into your eyes, right? That's exactly what happened to me. And I said, what the heck is that? I took another one. It happened again. I took another one. And finally, it kind of cleared. I got the photograph. And it was only later when we got those photographs out and I started looking at them, you could see the energy emanating from my partner's hand. She was calling the Reiki energy and it manifested. And those photographs are in the book. I don't think anyone has captured that energy in manifestation before. And it is a spiritually guided energy. It's not like, you know, light energy, you know, you switch it on or off, you know. It's absolutely extraordinary. It's one of many experiences I've had over the years in which spiritual beings have interacted in a very positive way. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that's the kind of thing I want to get into. Let's get a little bit weird with it. Because what about things like ancestral healing or bloodline clearing? Someone could have put a curse on our family a thousand years ago, and that could be why we find ourselves accident prone today or something like that. How do things work in this regard? Yeah, I mean, there isn't an analytic diagnostic procedure in this area of medicine, okay, in this area of healing work. It doesn't work in a linear way, and especially when you step out of a person's immediate biographical timeline, that's the stuff they can remember, and you step beyond the biographical timeline into issues they experienced in the womb and beyond the womb in past lives. You're not in an area that's susceptible to analytic diagnosis anymore. It becomes very intuitive, and to be honest, the results count. So I put these accounts in the book, but whether it's past lives or past lives with two little, you know, markers around it, doesn't matter from a healing perspective. The important thing is that the healing takes place, okay? But I put these things out there because they do occur on a regular basis for energy healers. 
And, you know, there's a number of cases in the book in which a deceased person has come into the healing process. And normally it's because something is incomplete in their own life or they want to assist the healing process. And the case I put in there, I think, is a woman who couldn't overcome her grief at the husband's loss. And like she was always in the kitchen washing up, watching her, because that was what he used to do. And my partner got the message coming through, you know, stop doing that. You know, to let go of it. And because of that, this woman was able to connect with her grief and then they were able to clear it. So it provided the crux of the healing process. So a lot of the things that occur during energy healing are directly related to the healing crux, so to speak. That one memory, that one event, which is pivotal to that person's either getting ill and then subsequently getting well when that event is dealt with. So this is field activity. This is not stuff that, you know, there's no like talk therapy referencing diaries to dig it out you know it's not an analytic process once that energy field forms whether it's in a family constellation or between a therapist and a person who wants therapy or wants healing that is also a mini field and the field has non-local atemporal qualities if you are intuitive in your mind you'll pick up the information necessary for the healing to take place at that time and again, this is why energy healing is a thing apart from mainstream medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like you have to check all the boxes on a person's biological timeline. And then if those modalities don't work, then you just go deeper. When you say go deeper, though, you don't actually have a, it's not like hypnotic regression. Fair. Go wider, maybe. You know, this is just a connection, a compassionate connection between healer and the person who needs help. And they'll always have some presenting issues. Okay, there's always something in our day-to-day -day lives which is intimately tied with our karma. So it's not like it, this stuff, even if it's in a past life, is not buried in this life. And there was an interesting study done by Dr. Ian Stevenson, I think. He did the studies in India where there were people claiming, especially children, who had clear memories of past lives. And from the physical state of their bodies with certain blemishes and so on, corresponded to how they had died in a previous life. Okay, so once we get out of this brain box idea, that everything is just in our head and not in a field, we make the transition to seeing that the past is never dead. It's not even past. Those lines are actually from famous American novelist William Faulkner, right? Well, I'm <laughs> certainly there intellectually. I'm accepting of the larger field and all this kind of stuff. But how do we get actual intel on our ancestral karma and if there is some kind of bloodline curse on us, where do we get that information? There are psychics you can work with, you know. I mean, I keep seeing this guy, Matt Fraser, on the social media, you know, Rosemary Altier. These people are psychics, perhaps not healers so much, 
So, you know, there are obviously people who can clue into this stuff directly. Things like family constellation therapy will bring it up. That is kind of a process that you can engage in. And if there's an issue like that involved, it will tend to surface in the constellation. You may need to do two or three constellations. You may need to dig back. But as long as you have a sense of disquiet in yourself, disquiet in relationship to relationships or power or money or family, that's your immediate cue that there's a karmic issue still activated in your ancestral line. Right on. And when it comes to like the jinn or higher ordered beings, I've heard you talk a little bit about this, that some really powerful spirits and entities can end up fixated or attached to a person. I'm curious what you do in those kind of cases and what's really in it for this entity. Why are they motivated to be so attached to an individual? Yeah, it's real good questions. First, it's very, very difficult to do anything about it. I want to just put that out there. The reason, as far as I can tell, I don't want to, I put a case up on academia.edu, okay? If people want to go and check that out, they can do. It's an extremely disturbing case of possession. And it was not one that I could do anything about. I documented it so people could be aware of it. But there's another case documented in the book, if I'm not mistaken. What I understand from these things is that people engage in ritual magical acts which have implications for when they die and they cease to have the material foundation of the physical body as a protection. So that if you have engaged yourself to a set of entities or you have been sacrificed to a set of entities in a previous life, it sets in chain a kind of ongoing cyclic action because many of these entities are a temporal almost you know they see us in our different lives and they do not make the connection with the persona as we would they make the connection with the continuity of the person which is on a far more subtle basis okay so once that attachment is made the recurrence of entity attachment possession in this life, which seems to have no explanation whatsoever, probably has a good explanation some generations back. This is one area. Let's call it the negative area for possession. Of course, there's positive possession as well as negative possession. Positive possession, of course, is thergy. When you invoke a deity into yourself, And as a result of it, you experience enlightened awareness for a brief period of time. And this is typical of the the higher yoga tantra, the Vajrayana traditions. This is something blissful. This is something evolutionary in a spiritual way. But the negative side of possession, yeah, it goes on. And you also mentioned that somebody may have had a kind of curse, a magical curse placed on them or on their ancestral line. Again, there's a case in the book like that. It's very hazardous to deal with. 
because you're you're dealing with something which is other than human. It's not in our life stream. It's kind of cut across. And I would say that the things that cut across our life stream are either higher vibrational or they're other dimensional. Okay. So there's also cases where, for instance, you have the alien abduction and the kind of genetic manipulations or extraction that goes on. And again, you're dealing with something which, okay, it happens, it's documented, but you can't do anything about it. You know, it's like this is a ceiling where we can't interact with it to do anything to stop it. And even to deal with the post-traumatic stress disorder that results from alien abduction or dangerous case of possession is itself difficult because of the porosity of the field of consciousness. If you dwell on these entities enough, you are in danger of connecting with them. Hmm. <laughs> Seems like your cat senses some kind of energy shift in the field out there. Yeah. Do you want me to chase her off? <laughs> oh, it's no big deal. I couldn't tell if it was your cat or mine for a minute. I had to take my headphones off. And, <laughs> and my cats hate a closed door, so Yo, recording yeah. time is always an issue. But uh, really interesting stuff, though, that there's this alien abduction connection. I guess so many paranormal experiences could probably be folded back into this context. It makes me wonder... If a person does have an experience where they see some kind of cryptid or, you know, a Bigfoot or they just see one of these things that are apparently out there, the dogmen people talk about, I wonder if that is some kind of clue to something in their bloodline or in their karma or that there is some kind of entity attached to them. If you get a sighting of something, I wonder if it relates back to a person's larger energetic self. That's possible. I, I was just thinking of Skinwalker Ranch when you were listing off those <laughs> categories. <laughs> that makes sense. You know, yes. and, and in that case, it's like the land itself, isn't it? It's like, you know, there's some places where the interface between these dimensions is a lot thinner than, uh, you know, comfortable for most of us. So, yeah, I think there's a geopsychic dimension to this you know there's certain houses there's certain plots of land places where this kind of phenomena is like you know outrageously out of control and then again there are definitely the possibility of imprints on one's own you know past lives that attracts this stuff back you know around you i think as well for some people they have psychism. I mean, they have a, a sight, but they don't recognize it. They don't work with it. And possibly they find it a bit disturbing. So certainly in my case, you know, I, I tend to see stuff. And I wouldn't say it's negative, but the kind of stuff I've seen has been very positive generally. I have to say that, yeah. The only other thing I was going to bring up is that you mentioned a new project coming out soon called The Tower of Kronos, Spiritual Descent in an Age of Tyranny, which also sounds pretty provocative. Can you give people a little <laughs> preview of that? Yeah, I mean, 
since I live in Istanbul, you know, the Hagia Sophia is just across the way from me. And I was interested in the other great mystery rites of the ancient world, the rites of Eleusis. And I guess for the esoteric tradition in the West, like the rites of Eleusis are like fundamental, foundational rituals to which all our traditions kind of look back in some way. Of course, the sanctuary of Eleusis, where these rites were conducted, was wiped out. It was destroyed in the 4th century. But the family, the initiatory family and its lineage went on. And this book traces how that initiatory lineage continued from the 4th century into the 6th century hmm. and ended up inspiring the architecture of the Hagia Sophia here in Istanbul. Nice. So that's the book. It's sacred architecture based on the ancient mystery rites. I love it. You know a lot about a lot, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Your hand in many pies. But, uh, man, you really do great work. Obviously, the new book, The Power of the Healing Field, is out pretty much everywhere. I certainly learned a lot. PeterMarkAdams.com is your website. Very much updated since the last time we talked. Great job there. Anything else to leave the people with? If they want to check out Mind Connection Healing, mindconnectionhealing.com is, is up. And go get yourself one or two of these techniques. Learn them, master them, apply them, and change the reality around you within your family and your connection, your circle. That's what I want to say. Go do it. <laughs> Cheers to that. It is time for action. We've heard enough. Now it's time to put it in practice because we'll be waiting forever if we just sit around and yeah. uh, talk about things and don't engage. So yeah. you are the man. I very much appreciate your work and your insights. Hopefully people listening have been inspired to imprint some positivity on the field because we certainly need it. Thanks again and take care out there. Thank you very much, Greg, for having me on. Yes, people, the return of Peter Mark Adams. He is a lot of fun. I think Game of Saturn is the work of his that resonates most with me, and by extension, I would thank you guys a little more than The Power of the Healing Field, but just barely, and it's nice that we got to talk about it a little bit at the beginning. And to be honest with you, we're about to enter into a string of THC episodes where I really like the guest, I really like their previous work, We've had good interviews in the past, but their latest work might not be the most interesting thing in the world to me, but they asked and I wanted to oblige, so we make it work. And like I said, not as true today as it will be for some of the shows coming down the pike, but just remember that I said that. I do find energy healing pretty compelling, though. In fact, I was inspired by this one to find a healer in San Diego that focuses on Eastern practices for allergies. I have a consultation in just a couple of hours from now. They use tapping and muscle feedback to determine your allergies. Then they have you hold what you're allergic to while doing acupuncture, and after about 20 sessions or so, they say you should no longer be bothered by whatever you're allergic to. So I don't know how it will work for me. It's not like it's a cat issue or a dog issue. I just have chronically bad sinuses. I don't know if it's one specific thing. 
But I figured I should take my own advice because when Peter said, well, these things aren't more popular because of the economics, I kind of pushed back and said, well, nobody is stopping these energy healers. It's more of an awareness problem and a confidence problem. People aren't confident that these things would help them, so they don't seek them out. And as I heard myself say that, I thought, hey, I should probably back that up and actually seek out some alternative treatment. Not exactly energy healing, but definitely unconventional for a lot of people, I would think. But I appreciate that Peter says, just go and do it. I mean, the proof is there for those who engage and for people who've never had any experiences with these things and just ridicule them or dismiss them. You don't know what you're talking about. But I hope you had a good time with this overall. I know I did. I have to kind of breeze through this wrap-up because I'm getting up at 5 a.m. to drive to Pine Top, Arizona for the weekend, pick up a few friends, and spend a few days with the Gramerica guys at their Magic on the Mountain event. I hope at least a couple of THC fans are there. I figure we have a decent overlap with Gramerica, but it's going to be fun to meet those guys in the flesh either way. But that said, if you're not a Plus member, you should be. And some of the things we talked about in today's second hour would be the lives of astral beings, ethics in the healing field, getting in touch with your spirit guides, Reiki, three things to do to fundamentally change your life, mystery traditions and the basis for civilization, humanity's cosmic quarantine, aliens, the eyes wide shut ritual, and a little bit about his last project and his next project. Give a little, get a little back. That's how we do it around here. If you are a Plus member, I appreciate it deeply, and I hope you liked the full show. I do want to highlight a couple new additions to the events on the Higher Side Meetup's calendar. I mentioned this one already, but it is this weekend, February 11th, Louisville, Kentucky, the 1020 Craft Brewery location. Should be a good time. And it is still the only one on the calendar for February, but we did get a couple added for March 2nd. We have the Higher Side New Moon Recalibration in Pacifica, California. That's going to be at Humble Sea Brewing Company. And also on March 2nd, we're going back to Seattle. The Seattle Inquisition at Chuck's. Bound to be good times meeting other Higher Side Chats fans. If you aren't in those areas, go over to HigherSideMeetups.com and make your own event. If you feel like hanging out with more people that are on your page, united by this out there stoner conspiracy podcast, and all the great guests that are willing to sit down with me. But check out Peter's book. If you're into this sort of thing, let him know you appreciated hearing him today. And maybe I'll see a couple of you guys in Pine Top this weekend. Hard to get away with a new baby, but probably a lot harder to get out of Canada without the shots, I would think. So if they can do that and come 35 hours, I guess I can come five. I could use a mini break anyway. So I will see you on the other side, fully recharged and ready to roll. Take care of you and yours. I'm getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, energy field suppressors, healing info hiders, and money-hungry agents of the big medical machine. Your fucking move. This is important, hear what I said I'm trying to tell you It's not paranoia, not in my head It's just the hard truth Knocked on your door while I still can To ask you a question Cause I know your head is still in the sand Don't be 
like oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke. You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway. It's a scary dark world. is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums, and you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. 
How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com where new first time subscribers always get a free seven day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check mailed to the PO box. And I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves. And I hope you'll join plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC plus will work with their podcast app. And the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high level app recommendations for whatever phone you use. And the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me, and cheers to a better tomorrow.